0: as we come to your word, we pray that you will open our hearts and minds to see the wonder and the riches that you have for us in your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, why is Anzac Day so important to New Zealanders, in particular Gallipoli? What makes this far-off battle that we commemorate today resonate so deeply, even to those of us who have never been there and who may struggle to find it on a map? I mean, none of us saw action there. Most of us haven't set foot on those far off shores that saw so much New Zealand and Australian blood spilt. The fighting wasn't even in New Zealand, and we lost. So why is Anzac story so important to us? Well, the answer is it's because when we as a nation came of age. At Waitangi, at 1840, our nation was born, but at Gallipoli... We came of age. Instead of a colony dependent on England, we realised that we were our own people with our own path to forge and our own identity to celebrate. We were not replicas of Mother England, but we were Kiwis. We were proud to be. So with the blood of the brave and the bodies of the fallen on a far-off distant shore, our nation became Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's who we are. And it's our roots. And you know, it's similar with the Exodus story. The account of God rescuing his people from slavery and bringing them to the promised land is our spiritual Anzac. Now, first and foremost, it's the Easter story with Christ's death and resurrection that defines us as Christians. It's our birth. It's our Waitangi. But the New Testament also talks about those who took past in the original Exodus as our spiritual fathers who have gone before us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this quite a bit from verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. This is God's way of saying Exodus is our story. The roots sink way down deep, generation to generation, millennia ago, showing us who we are and where we came from spiritually. So the first reason why we open up the book of Exodus, and we'll be doing that over the next few months, is because like the Anzac story connects us to our national roots, Exodus story connects us to our spiritual roots. Second reason why we'll be looking at Exodus over the next few months is because it can help us live authentic Christian lives. Still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read this, verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Now, these things are the Exodus story and also the wanderings in the wilderness, Numbers. These things took place as examples for us, verse 11 of Corinthians 10. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction. So New Testament is making it very clear that Exodus and Numbers, that whole story of the rescue from slavery and then the journey to promised land, is very important to us as examples, warnings against this, encouragements to do this. As we work through Exodus, we will see that we can live lives that please God. We can learn how to live authentic lives. Christian lives. Another reason to go through the book of Exodus is because of baptism and communion. These are the two sacraments that we celebrate and they have their roots in the Exodus story. As we connect baptism to the Israelites escaping through the Red Sea and as we connect communion to the Passover meal, we experience in the here and now a greater richness and depth as we reflect on our baptism and as we regularly take the bread and the cup. A fourth reason for going through Exodus, opening it up, is because we can understand salvation, our salvation, in a deeper and a better way. There are wonderful images that are associated with our salvation that are found in Exodus. Redemption from slavery, blood sacrifice, substitution, liberation, reconciliation to God, Adoption as sons and daughters, priesthood. All of this, these phrases, these images that we use for our salvation have their roots in the Exodus story. The final reason why we'll be opening up Exodus is because it describes our freedom. We are free in Christ. If Christ will set you free, you are free indeed. But what are we free to? We are freed from slavery and death. We are. Fr- but what are we freed to? Well, Exodus helps us answer this question. Ten times, Moses went to the Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, this is God's word for you. Let my people go so that they might, do you know? Let my people go so that they might worship me. Nine times, Pharaoh said no or changed his mind until the 10th time. And do you know what the Israelites did? They went into the wilderness and they worshipped God. Exodus is made up of 40 chapters. The first 20 chapters deal with the escape. The second 20 chapters of Exodus deal with worshipping God. How do we as God's people worship him? You see, and this is so relevant for us because many people want to be free. They want to be free from whatever's oppressing them, their bondages, their concerns, their worries. And they want to be free, and most people want to be free so they can do their own thing. Well, that's not how Christians see freedom. We are set free to worship the living God who set us free. It's very different. It's core not only to the Exodus story, but it's core to our Christian faith. As Christians, we're not set free from sin and death so we can do our own thing. We are set free so that we can worship the living God. And Exodus helps show us why. So these are the reasons why we will be opening up Exodus over the next few weeks. Because this is where we find our spiritual roots. Helps us to live authentic Christian life. Give us a fresh understanding of communion and baptism. Talks about our salvation It helps us understand what true freedom is. So let's open up the text. Let's start in chapter 1. If you haven't got your Bibles with it, you'll see that you have that in the insert in your newsletter. So we have Exodus chapter 1. Now, the first five verses are really housekeeping. You're told, reminded of the 12 sons of Jacob, their names, and that they were all descended from Jacob, and they were in Palestine until they were rescued. Well, we know the backstory, we know the backstory of the rescue, how God raised up Joseph from an Egyptian prison to save from famine, not just his family, but all of Egypt and the surrounding nations. And then Joseph moved his family, 70, from what is modern day Israel to Egypt. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 6. Exodus 1 verse 6, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And here we see a very crucial promise given many, many years before fulfilled here in Exodus. One night, one clear, dark night, God spoke to Abraham, and he said this in Genesis 26, verse 4 I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there were two promises in this verse two promises to Abraham about his offspring. One is that his offspring will be a blessing to the nations. Now, we've seen that fulfilled with Joseph. Joseph was his great-grandson, and because God raised him up, they blessed all the nations and saved them from famine. But there's a second promise here, and the promise is that Abraham's offspring will number more than the stars. And this is what we see fulfilled from verse 6. Only 70 moved, extended family of 70, moved from Palestine and moved into Egypt. And now we see that they are multiplying exceedingly greatly. This is the fulfillment of this promise. And you think this bodes well, two promises fulfilled, but it doesn't. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get a lot better. And so we see this in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for the Pharaoh store cities Pithon and Ramses. So, what's happening here? Well, as the Israelites are increasing in numbers, the new Pharaoh starts to pay attention, and he's worried. He discovers that this immigrant group not only are multiplying in great numbers, but their loyalty is uncertain. What will happen if war breaks out? They might choose to go to the other side and leave the country, become free. And on top of this, Pharaoh doesn't know or chooses to forget that many years earlier, Joseph rescued Egypt from famine. So with no sense of gratitude at all, Pharaoh attempts to snuff out this risk. He will make the Hebrews to be forced laborers. He will make them into a slave nation. And as the cities of Pithon and Ramses are being built, Pharaoh believes he has it all under control. The threat is dealt with. He can relax. But no, verse 12. But more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were in dread. Numbers had skyrocketed. And it's not just Pharaoh now, but it's Pharaoh's people. The Egyptians are now in dread because of the numbers of this immigrant race. So we look into verse 13. What's his next step? So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's pretty grim, isn't it? But it's actually going to get significantly worse. Pharaoh's first plan was to work them ruthlessly, and he has two more wicked plans up his sleeve. Let's look at wicked plan number two in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom is named Shifra and the other poor, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Infant side, isn't it? Infant side. For if the slave nation is so good at bearing children, Pharaoh will control numbers here. At their most vulnerable, before each newborn boy is placed in his mother's arms, the baby will be killed. Isn't this a wicked plan? Ruthless, diabolical plan. Imagine it. But God. But God has a better plan, and it's centered around two remarkable women. Sifra and Pua. Woman to remember heroines of this story. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the male children live. Forced with the choice of fearing God or fearing Pharaoh, they chose to fear God first. But now they're in a very difficult situation because you cannot you cannot keep this from Pharaoh. He will find out what will they do. What will they do? Well, here we go for the midwives. The king finds out. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Well, they're in a no-win situation, aren't they? If they tell the truth, then not only will they probably be killed, but these babies will be killed as well. The other option is to lie. And if they lie, then the chances are they'll be able to save their life and keep on saving the baby. So what are they going to do? Are they going to tell a lie or the truth? Are they going to play it safe or are they going to risk their lives? Verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So they lie. (laughs) Now, there might be some truth in it, but at the end of the day, it's a big, fat, juicy, just a broad-faced lie. Bit of a red flag, really, isn't it? I thought we weren't supposed to tell lies. And God's obviously blessed them. In another 80 years, God will give Moses the Ten Commandments. Number nine. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not give false testimony. Sorry, what's happening here? Especially when 1 Corinthians says these are examples for us to follow and God obviously blessed them. We're going to look at this a little later on when we come to the take-homes. Just sit with that. Is it ever a good thing for a Christian to tell a lie? Anyway, the heroines have saved the day except now, Pharaoh has a third scheme. The first scheme was to work them hard. Second one, kill the babies at birth. And chapter one ends with this third wicked plot. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So Pharaoh extends his murderous scheme so that the newborn Hebrew boys will be cast thrown into the Nile. Apart from drowning, we're talking about Nile crocodiles. We're talking about carrion birds. We're talking about certain death. And this is very, very grim for God's people. But God has a plan, a wonderful plan, a plan that you'll have to wait till next week to find out. Can I encourage you to read during the week? You're allowed to, you know. You're allowed to read up and work out how the story goes during the week. But we're going to pick up that next week. But it ends on such a grim note, doesn't it, chapter 1? But what are our take-homes? What are some of the implications for us? 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these are here for our examples, for our instruction. What can we learn? Well, the first thing we can learn is God is faithful and he fulfills his promises. It was four generations earlier to Abraham that God said that your offspring will bless the nations. Then Joseph came and saved the nations from famine. It was four generations before that God said, your numbers will number of the stars. And now here in Exodus, numbers are exploding and God is faithful. But two things we can learn when God is faithful with his promises. First of all, he is faithful in his time and not our time. Now, Isn't that frustrating? (laughs) When you're claiming the promises of God and you want it now and there's good reasons for it now and God delays? he has a reason. He is faithful, but in his time. The second time is that sometimes when God answers his promises, things get worse before they get better. It's a bit grim, isn't it? And that's because God is God, and he knows all much more than we do. So we cling to the promises of God, and most of the time, as we are faithful, he comes through. But there are times when he delays for his reasons, and there are times when sometimes things get worse before they get better. But this is the way that God works. And we think of that promise where Abraham was told that his offspring will bring bless the nations. That was only partially fulfilled with Joseph because Abraham's offspring would bless the nations in all fullness when Jesus came. And so here we have a very common example of prophecy being partially fulfilled in one situation and completely filled in Christ. And the other part of that promise to Abraham would be that his his offspring would, would be greater than the stars. Now, in Abraham's day, it's the same as us. If we go out without a telescope, there's about 3,000 stars that you can see with the naked eye. Now, we know through telescopes and that that there are billions more, but Abraham would have looked up, and if he would bothered to count it, he would have struggled to get more than 3,000. Hasn't God wonderfully blessed that more? Because we are the offspring of Abraham. The New Testament makes it clear that everyone who is faith like Abraham is a son of Abraham, faith like Abraham. And so we are part of that answer. I mean, there's over a billion Christians in the world today. And so we are part of that fulfillment where the offspring of Abraham will be greater and number greater than the stars. God fulfills his promises in ways that surprise us. So that's the first take home from this morning. The second take home is we have a wonderful example of what it is to fear God. Now, you read all in the Bible, and then you come across these passages which encourage us to fear God, and they've always been a puzzle to me, and I still haven't got my head completely wrapped around it, because we have a heavenly Father who dearly loves us. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus, his only son, to die for us, so we could be adopted as his sons and daughters. And many of us rightly have the image of the prodigal son where the prodigal has been wayward. He comes to his senses, and then his father sees the prodigal, and the father runs to his son and embraces him and has a big party. And and that's exactly how our father heart is towards you and I. We need to encourage and develop that understanding. And then every now and again, it says, fear God. You think, oh, okay, what does that mean? Well, here with the two midwives, we have a perfect example of what it is to fear God in a, in a healthy way, not a scared way that he's going to punish us uh, like an overzealous uh, father might inappropriately um, punish a son. No, no, no. This is how we can fear God. You see, the woman had the choice, didn't they? It was an extreme choice. They could either be involved in murdering babies or they could obey God. Both of them had terrible consequences and they decided that they would fear God and suffer the consequences from Pharaoh. Now, most of us, I don't think any of us are going to be faced in that sort of situation. But fearing God can help us to do the right thing. Now, when it comes to our motivation for doing the right thing, living authentic Christian lives, 19 times out of 20, 99 times out of 100, that motivation comes out of gratitude because of what Jesus did for us and all he gave for us. And and it just wells up that we want to do the right thing with God. And that's the... That's our default position, but there'll be time, and sometimes there'll be some situation we're faced with where actually it's the fear of God, not wanting to upset Him, that motivates us. Shall I sleep with my boyfriend or not? No, I won't, because that will upset God. Shall I enter into this dodgy business deal? I can make a lot of money, and I'll give a lot to the church. No, I won't, because this deal will upset God. Shall I hold on to this grudge? God knows exactly what that person did to me, and it was just awful. Shall I hold on to this grudge? No, because that will upset God. I mean, those are some examples where the fear of God encourages us to live authentic Christian lives. And these midwives, they're heroes, aren't they heroines? They show us the way under an extreme example. And the final take home for today is our, our integrity. That ethical tension between the midwives telling a great big lie to the most important person in Egypt. 1 Corinthians says we need to follow their example, especially when God obviously blessed them. So, Shall Christians lie? Can we use this passage as an example of lying? I could preach two or three sermons on sort of the ethical tension here and other places in the Bible. There's not a lot, but when they pop up, they, they do require some thinking. But I'll leave it to John Ortberg. He's a, an author and a minister that I respect, and he writes this. If you are ever coerced into comfort and committing mass murder by a genocidal maniac, and the only way to get out of helping in this mass murder is to deceive the maniac with a lie, I think God will understand. And when I thought of that, I thought of Corey Boom, and I thought of those situations where during the Second World War, those Christians, and non-Christians for that matter, but those Christians would hide Jews, and they would lie to the German troops about the fact that they were doing that. I mean, it's extreme, isn't it? But there may be cases, unlikely in our lives, but there may be extreme cases where we will be forced to lie. But again, John Ortberg continues and puts it this way. If, however, you try and use this passage to justify the kind of self-serving deceit that most of us engage in, that's a big mistake. This is not what God is trying to teach us in this passage. The midwives are heroes, hero wins, because they feared God. And they did the right thing. This is not an example or a get-out-of-jail-free for us to lie when it suits us. Much more could be said. Now, chapter 1 of Exodus finishes on such a grim note, doesn't it? A royal edict to cast infant boys into the Nile. And we could call this the murder of the innocents. And in this, we are reminded of another king who ordered such a crime. Uh, do you know the king's name? Another king that ordered the murder of infant boys? Yeah, King Herod, don't we? We know it from the nativity story, from the gospel of Matthew. We pick this up in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, those who were two years old or under. And so we have another wicked king. And you know, Satan is using the same scheme. In Genesis chapter 3, it talks about um, God prophesies to the serpent, saying that an offspring of Eve will come and will crush your head. And Satan was on notice. And he knew with Abraham's blessing that that person that was going to crush his head was going to come through Abraham's line. And so he was going to snuff out Abraham's line. And so he had Pharaoh throw every baby boy into the Nile that he could. And that was Satan's plan. God rescued Moses the savior of the Israelite people and so it didn't work and Satan's not too imaginative so when another offspring came through Mary and he knew that this was the Messiah he thought he'd do the same thing get all those baby boys killed and snuff out this one that was going to crush my head and again Again, we see that God was one step ahead of Satan and the plan failed. In fact, with a bit of irony, where did Joseph and Mary escape to? To Egypt. Bit of irony there, isn't there? But anyway, Satan, without any imagination, tried the same trap, the same wicked scheme twice, and he failed twice because our God is a great and wonderful saviour. So here in Exodus, we see echoes moving forward to the coming of Jesus and that that murder of the innocents was thwarted, and the Saviour of God's people, who would rescue them from slavery and move them into a position of worshipping God with all their heart, was coming. Let's pray.